Welcome, everybody, to the first episode of the Inspiratio podcast, a podcast that will inspire us to look deeper in the realms of spirituality, rationality, and art. I am your host, Navid Divana. I'm an eclectic DJ with a degree in neuroscience and explorations in the realm of meditation and philosophy and i live in the beautiful city of amsterdam in the netherlands today's guest is dr ruben laukonen he's my friend he's a cognitive neuroscientist and he studies meditation with amazing tools here in amsterdam at the freie universiteit we're gonna discuss many topics um like studying meditation with artificial intelligence, the breakdown of concepts in the mind, consciousness without content, subjective experience as a tool of measurement, the possible dangers of meditation, lessons learned along the contemplative path, and yeah, as I said, other topics. I just shortly want to say that for me, rationality and spirituality are in no way competing fields. And I think this will become more clear during this episode and future episodes. Uh, also, there is a short introduction episode to the Inspiratio podcast. So if you want, you can go check that out. I will release a new episode every four to six weeks. And I'm saying this early 2022. Uh, because this probably will increase in the future. And if you enjoy this show, you can contribute to its future growth and new episodes through a monthly subscription or one-time donation. And you decide what you want to pay. Every amount is highly appreciated. Check out inspiratiopodcast.com or the episode description in your podcast player for more info. And I'm very grateful for your support. Also, when you want to be updated, when there is a new episode released, you can sign up for our newsletter. Also check out our website or the episode description to find out how. And I will only send an email when there's a new episode and no other spam. Promised. And the current episode, um, in the first part... There is perhaps a bit more uh, hardcore scientific dialogue going on. And later on, the conversation has a more broader philosophical and spiritual flavor. And now I bring you Dr. Ruben Laukonen. Hey, mate. How are you doing? I'm fantastic. <laughs> it's Good. an honor to be your first guest on the yeah. Inspiratio podcast. Nice. Okay. <laughs> So, um, you want to do your own introduction? Let's yeah. have you do. Yeah, man. <laughs> okay. Um, well, where to begin? Uh, I work as a neuroscientist. That's one thing. I do research on meditation. Um, I did a PhD on insight experiences in Australia. Yeah. Um, I also practice also a lot of meditation for the last 10 years or so so traditions such as zen theravada also advaita vedanta non-duality um so i would say at heart i'm a good match for your podcast because i'm very interested in these uh, different ancient spiritual traditions i've been engaged with them met many teachers um but also my path has very much been as a contemplative scientist so Right from the beginning, I was um, uh, also practicing meditation um, for about 10 years. 
Um, and so I've kind of traveled this joint path the whole way through of um, kind of going through the first person phenomenological aspects yeah. of um, discovering how the mind works and then simultaneously, sorry, <laughs> combining it with this uh, rational scientific approach yeah. and really um, uh, finding that the two feed back onto each other beautifully. I mean, this is, this is a, a bigger movement I think we see in, um, in science in general now that there's a, yeah, a bigger respect for first-person methods of inquiry in addition to the third-person tools of science, and um, and so that, that, that's that's been my path, and and I I find that there's this beautiful uh, dialectic or exchange uh, within myself and and my experience of um, you know going on the retreats and doing the inner work and then simultaneously developing research questions that I can directly test in the in the lab using, for example, EEG and machine learning these kinds of techniques to to know what's going on sort of um with the with the brain and the the biology of the whole process yeah yeah i guess that's the that's the little bit of background a little bit of background well that was a whole lot of things in there already so uh (laughs) i think um what i really find interesting is um what you uh, said about the subjective experience uh, combined with, you know, like practicing meditation Mm -hmm. uh, and experiencing first person what it is and then also diving into the science. Mm -hmm. And um, I think, uh, like, if I'm kind of looking at how maybe science has been in the West in the last 50 years, there's been kind of a... um, well, maybe the last, uh, yeah, the a movement where there have been, a, yeah, scientists in different disciplines, behavioral disciplines, kind of uh, just looking at the, trying to just have measurements, right? Mm-hmm. Trying to have a number on a paper, trying to have a digit on a screen, and then seeing that like sort of as an objective uh measurement mm-hmm. i'm not saying all scientists etc but like this has been kind of a behavioral behavioral western approach to things um uh, but at the same time uh the subjective experiences where it all happens even the number that you read on your paper is mm-hmm. in the end a subjective thing yeah. that's going on there so can you say something about I can say a lot about this. Am um, I right or wrong or whatever? No, it's it's well. There's lots of different ways that I think we can value both in the way that they feed into each other. I mean, first of all, the kind of research questions that you're going to ask in the lab are uh, driven by what you know. So this is one thing. Even science is a subjective process in the sense that where does the idea for a research question come from? Where does the idea for what I'm going to actually test in the lab, where does the hypothesis come from? All of this is a kind of subjective process based on the knowledge of the person who's coming up with those research questions. So, So the scientist past experience, right? And so if you don't have some grounding in the first person experience or you're not at least in conversation with people who have the first person experience then your research questions are going to be kind of crappy so i'll give you an example because um with really deep states of meditation right it's it's really hard to do experiments with that because the classical sort of paradigm for doing a scientific experiment is that you have people do tasks 
you have them look at a computer, you know, stand completely yeah. still. It's completely unnatural. And then you have them do some some task on the computer. Maybe you measure some neural activity while you're doing that. But if you're in a deep state of meditation, you can't be interacting at the same time. Because in the deepest states, you're deconstructing the very foundations of your first-person experience. It's all It's all gone, right? So you're fundamentally taking them out of the state that's interesting in order to do the science. And right. this, is, this is what went on for a long time in the, in the scientific paradigm. So now, for example, what we're trying to do is um, uh, you create what we call no-report paradigms of, of uh, research, which means that we're able to know what's going on in the brain uh, without them having to do subjective reports, right? So we have them going to, for ah, example… Yeah. A meditative state we measure neural activity while they just go into the states in and out of the states but then we use machine learning algorithms to decode what's going on in the mind from the neural activity yeah, so just for for the audience machine learning we're we're talking about artificial intelligence yeah 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 exactly yeah so a machine which is starting to um uh, core like learn from the observations it's doing in their brain activity yeah to see uh to what state they're in it uh, maps onto mm. is that what you're saying yeah so we're going kind of really deep already yeah, so yeah. I'm, I'm so, <laughs> sorry for your audience but <laughs> i'm sure we'll come back to some more simple stuff but exactly. the basic idea with the grab the, some popcorn and a drink <laughs> guys we're going deep good <laughs> Um, so the basic idea with this whole machine learning approach is that you, um, you want to know what's going on in the mind, mm -hmm. um, but you want to know what's going on in the mind without the person telling you. That's the problem, right? You want to get in the mind without them having to just report about it because they also don't know their own mind. But isn't, isn't this, this sounds a bit like one of the, uh, biases in neuroscience, right? Like, I don't know if, if, if if uh, I'm getting this right about what mm. you're describing here, but I know that, like, for example, the amygdala is a part of the brain that is involved in fear. Mm. And there has been a point where scientists kind of said, like, okay, we're going to put someone in a brain scanner in an fMRI, yeah. and then uh, if we're going to show them some stimulus, some picture or whatever, and yeah, if yeah, we yeah. see amygdala activation, we don't even have to double check if the person was actually experiencing back to the subjective yeah, thing, yeah, yeah. first person fear yeah. and uh, that th then i yeah how can no, this be? is a great question you're okay. exactly the right person to talk to about this stuff because you bring up the things that we need to tease apart really well <laughs> okay so um it's different because here we don't try to localize anything to any particular region of the brain which from my perspective as a kind of Someone who zooms out, I think of this, the human organism as a kind of very inactive embodied oh, system yeah. where the brain is connected to everything. Anyway, so I don't, I, I'm not someone who's actually interested in zooming in on particular locations in the brain. I mean, it's important work. It's not my thing though. So what we do with the machine learning is I'll give you a very simple example of how the whole thing works. So then you get a sense for it. So basically I could present to you scenes of, for example, um, trees. I could present trees to you um, and you'll have a certain uh, set of neural activity happen in response to that tree. It doesn't matter what, but certain patterns of activity will happen. Yeah. Then I can present your face and 
compared to the tree, the patterns of activity will be different. Yeah. Right? So you'll just, you'll have two different patterns of activity. Now, what those patterns are is really hard for us to figure out. And so that's why instead of trying to analyze them to particular regions or something like that, we use a machine learning algorithm that actually picks up on the differences in the patterns. Yeah. So it learns, Ah, it learns to what your brain looks like when you look at trees it learns what your brain looks like when you look at faces and then by having done that it's able to in a new situation tell whether you're looking at a face or a tree right without you saying anything ah, you got it perfect yeah, yeah. There you go. and and then uh so looking at trees and faces and analyzing that is interesting and having a, a machine uh, predicting what you've actually seen that's really exactly. interesting and kind of creepy i don't know if yeah. this is going to be a conversation where we look into the ethics of artificial <laughs> intelligence but um now how do you so now we're talking about things you see but how do you uh, relate this to uh, meditation and what, yeah. what is the machine telling us there yeah i mean there's lots of different ways we can do this but i'll give you one example of what we're trying to do at the moment okay um and i've just finished collecting a bunch of data on this with a lot of meditation experts um yeah. but basically what we're doing there so for instance when i'm speaking <clears throat> to you now yeah. right your brain automatically makes sense of the sounds into yeah. words so you might, this conceptualization yeah. process happens in this like i don't have extreme, a choice you don't have a choice it <laughs> happens to you right yeah. and then comes all the interpretations from also what you hear so the brain kind of constructs our experience in this sort of extremely rapid way yeah um and so what we one one theory of how meditation works and this is sort of the theoretical work we've been doing as well is that there's as you come closer and closer into the here and now into really deeply the present moment you're deconstructing concepts basically conceptualization the tendency to interpret what's happening slowly just comes down until you reach a state of pure awareness or silence so there's this gradual deconstruction process that happens and do you okay um and then but we we still need the subject to confirm this right that they are in a state where there is no more conceptualization we can, we instruct them to get into that state and so you find people who have the capacity to and do how, these things how do you know like i i'm i'm trying to be very skeptical here because i i from first person experience and from conversations with people i do believe that it's possible to get in states like that yeah. um but still how do you measure this well that's what we're trying to do we're trying to specifically test if what they're saying is true and i can tell you why or how okay Okay. so you get people (laughs) you you instruct them to go into the state but the interesting thing is are they actually getting into the state and what, what we mean by this state can be different depends on the meditation technique they're doing but on the most advanced kind of wild level is that they enter a state where there's no conceptualization where they go beyond the brain's tendency to project everything yeah project ideas project concepts um and we want to see evidence of that you know we want to see objective evidence because me as a, as a meditator you as someone who talks to these people we we kind of know that these states kind of exist um but we want to see if it's actually the case from a uh, objective third person perspective so what we can do is we teach the machine learning algorithm how to know when your brain is experiencing concepts 
right? So in the same way that we do the uh, face yeah. and the house, okay. those elicit two different patterns of neural activity, yeah. right? And the machine learning algorithm can tell you that those two patterns are different. So you are experiencing those concepts as yeah. separate entities in the brain because they look different in the brain. Yeah. But by definition, and this goes for words, right? So if I could say, if I say a word like, if I, let's just say it's, it sounds, and I say tree, um, and then I say fire. Yeah. Those are two very different experiences from the brain's perspective and also for you because they're two different concepts. Okay. But, and so they look different in the brain. Is it, do they really, go, like tree and fire, are, are we at a level that we can really distinguish the activity that's really like related to tree and to fire. We so, can go much more detail really? than that. We can go. <laughs> we can distinguish between the number one and the t one and two. We can. People have been able to reconstruct dreams yeah. using machine learning okay. algorithms. Wow. It's getting extremely precise. So not only anymore just knowing, distinguishing between things that are being presented, but also reconstructing what the brain's doing and actually projecting an image. Yeah. So you can watch YouTube videos okay. about this. Um, just watch out a little bit for that cable when watch. you. Yeah, I get a bit excited. <laughs> yeah, I I mean, we're working I was with Italian a... in a past life. Okay. Um, uh, where was I? So, so anyway, so, so the fire in the tree doesn't matter what it is. Let's say fire in a tree, they look different in the brain. Right. Or okay. e even more clear is, for example, if you go beep, that yeah. sound compared okay. to fire, those are very two different, okay. two very different experiences for the brain. Right? Yeah. So now if you're going into a deeper, deeper, deeper state of meditation where all your sense of interpretation is going away then these two things that looked really different in the brain at one moment should actually start to look really similar. Ah. You see? Because now the tendency to construct these concepts is breaking down, and so now your brain is not anymore responding to them as, as different categories, as different conceptualizations. Right. So if we start to see this breakdown, that is to say that the machine learning algorithm can no longer actually pick oh, up on yeah. those patterns, okay. it's suggesting that you are genuinely in this state where conceptualization has begun to break down. You explain it so well, I kind of feel stupid for having asked ask this in the first person. It's somewhat in Your the training. Your question was fantastic. <laughs> fantastic, fantastic. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, obviously, um, it's always hard to come up with good research paradigms, but this sounds, like, amazing. This is, uh, yeah, I think I, I, I still come from a time where, uh, when I was doing my uh, neuroscience uh, master research uh, in the Erasmus University in Rotterdam, I think uh, we were still at a time where people, this is maybe seven or eight years ago, maybe it was just also a lack of knowledge in our lab specifically, because it was mm -hmm. not the expertise there. But it was more like, yeah, uh, a lot of the data from the brain scanners from the fMRI right now is uh, actually uh, really difficult to replicate. And yeah. these things are noisy. And so I, now you're saying we can actually see exactly what happens, like when there is a concept and there isn't when mm -hmm. there is fire and when there is a tree and when there is a beep and when they're not there. And I'm like, whoa, uh, I thought, like, what happened? Is it really that this jump is made in the last decade or something? Or? Yeah, I mean, you know, even if we find what we want to find, yeah. I would say replicate it, do it many times. Let's yeah, see. yeah, yeah, I mean, obviously. It's, it's, um, it's still um, a, a error-prone process. Science is not perfect, but we do yeah. our best to control for the things for sure. But some things, you know, are much more obvious than other things so some things replicate really beautifully and it's it's really obvious and some things are more sort of uh messy yeah let's say yeah okay i mean other things we we can do and some people have already done with meditators for example is look at startle responses or you know things that are like highly automatic physiological 
responses to things you know you get really clear neural responses you get clear physiological responses those things are easier to replicate because they're the actual paradigms you're working with are so solid right? yeah but then when you get into this domain of new paradigms and and uh working with um especially higher cognition social cognition it just gets trickier it's and and then you get into the domain of more individual differences you have to deal with and yeah. um and as we were saying before there are so many issues about the specific context that you run any experiment in because you know one experiment might lock the person's head in completely into something to keep them completely still another person might be in a, you know a nice comfortable room doing the same experiment and then all of these things can affect the consistency of the data so that's why when you get people across different labs trying to do the same experiment unless they do it exactly the same it's hard to say whether it's an issue of specifically the data replicating or just a, a failure of right. scientists okay. to replicate the conditions, yeah. which also says something about how interesting the effect is. I mean, if it doesn't replicate across two different labs, then maybe the effect is so weak that we shouldn't even care about it. Right. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I don't know if you answered this, but so it's not the, the, the machines have a rev resolution which is good enough to... Um, to rely on. So the scanning, the brain mm. scanning techniques are now... the so precise that they can really yeah. specify well i think what's being improving is actually how we can uh decode the uh, information that we get from the device so for example the eeg or the or fmri these are things we've been using for yeah. a long time the eeg hasn't changed much for a long yeah. time but what's getting better so maybe is we the should algorithms. what yeah. the eeg is uh, and fmri <laughs> yes. well i don't Shortly. do it much but EEG is uh, electroencephalography. So basically, this is where we do we put electrodes on the head, yeah. um, sometimes more, sometimes less, and we basically just um, measure the spontaneous electrical activity from the scalp mm. of the head. Okay. Yeah. So each of these electrodes picks up different kind of activity, sometimes from different sources in the in the brain, and then um, we get this re really nice electrical activity over time. And then basically we analyze what happens yeah. in the brain at different time points during different exactly. kinds of activities and all that. So the interesting thing is that EEG is a, a, a very um, rough way of measuring. It's kind of just measures. It doesn't even give a like a. It j doesn't generate a picture of a brain with parts lighting no. up like fMRI does. So EEG is just like the waves of certain parts and stuff. And the, yeah. obviously, of course, something like artificial intelligence, machine learning is ideal for picking up uh, yeah, significant data differences yeah. from things that in maybe our eyes would be uh, much different, more difficult to analyze with Exactly. normal programming or something yeah so this is the advance i think at the moment and did being able to make sense of this weird squiggly lines yeah, yeah. That, that each of these electrodes produce so okay so going back uh the the, the people uh, wait you were s explaining uh something about where were we actually <laughs> so go, going back to um meditation uh -huh. someone in a state of no concept what have you learned so far uh, yeah i mean now i'm really i haven't got all the data yet yeah, so yeah, it's, yeah. it's um it's still in the process and and it's also one of these things that we really need to find the most advanced meditators that we can because you know, the other thing that science relies on is getting these populations of people and then looking at group averages and so on. But what's ideal really is getting people who are extremely advanced, who can do these things really on demand and then just replicating them, I think, even better with a few individuals who are really, really advanced. So at the moment, I'm doing more this sort of group average 
you know so yeah. I, I, let's say i've got 30 meditators 30 experienced meditators how do you know who's really the expert how do you know who can actually exactly. do the states that they're doing i mean this is yeah. super hard to do for science i mean it's like trying to objectify spiritual advancements or spiritual yeah. skills i mean it's super <laughs> tricky but we're making progress on on that um but yeah that's just to say that um i think the most interesting things i'll have to share are going to be actually next year um because towards the end of this year i'm getting some really very advanced meditators that i can work with um and uh i think there we're gonna find some really radical things so nice yeah and uh where are you getting uh, these advanced meditators from like is it mm. uh, something that's fits the stereotype like is it people from actually like regions like tibet and stuff or are there all, mm. also here in the west uh, people who are... yeah i think you'd be surprised now it's um because meditation and um spiritual practices are are so much more widespread than they once were yeah now it's possible to find yeah whole populations of expert meditators even here in the netherlands so but I, 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 we do have to kind of open our scope a little bit to find, um, I think, the really rare cases. I mean, but by definition, the most advanced people are going to be rarer and then they could be anywhere um, oh, yeah. in the world. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm a little bit hung up on this advanced thing because yeah. I, I want to be clear that what I mean by that is just somebody who has a lot of control over their mind processes in yeah. this case. So this is this is kind of a scientific view. So it doesn't mean that they're the most advanced in terms of that particular meditative tradition. I think usually that ends up being the case, but um, each spiritual tradition kind of quantifies what it means to be advanced differently. I mean, I mean, this is kind of an interesting topic. Like, what does it mean to be a really advanced meditator? Does it mean you're, you're, you have a lot of compassion? Are you really active in the world? And are you actually changing things for the better or is it that you can just enter into special states of consciousness i mean is that what it's about i mean this is just a interesting question too yeah that's an interesting question but then if we come back to your uh well the an interesting thing to ask is because if if, if we would well if we would pu uh, purely look at uh what you were saying about concepts and um uh in the brain and then like when a meditator is able to make them sort of like to go beyond that and mm. not rely on concepts but pure like so maybe be, we should be a bit clear about this that it's really about like being a kind of a baby right mm. uh, in a way like not just having experiences light color shadow this mm. that and mm. everything uh, so if that's if that's the thing your meditator has to be good in they mm. can be a uh <laughs> serial killer and still be good at that and then you could analyze them for this specific study right technically i think that's possible i mean yeah i think it's unlikely because <laughs> i think just certain things maybe naturally happen as one deconstructs yeah. their their mind through these practices but it's i think um it's possible yeah so but, and there's examples of that right there's lots of advanced true. meditators who do all kinds <laughs> of bad shit true 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 but but um i mean specifically because you you were saying um that we're looking for people yeah you know what is an advanced meditator mm. but if you're if if the research question is well we're just analyzing that non-conceptual thing right now then that's uh, would be enough for that research yeah right exactly yeah. yeah but then the question comes up um what is the point of the research because um, mm. 
So what do we want? To, what do you want to discover by analyzing brain activity and meditation? Because somehow I would think sometimes like, um, is it that important to have to know the neural uh, basis and the brain activity for everything? Um, I love it, this question. I, yeah, yeah, it's good. I have two motivations. Um, one on a more scientific level is that if we want to understand the brain in the human organism and how it works, then you want to study people who can do unusual things with it because it reveals something about the nature of the brain and plasticity in general. Yeah, so, so plasticity. Yeah, is... so you you learn about how the brain works by doing yeah. these things. And in particular, you learn about how plastic, how far mm. can this thing go? And I, if the meditators are people who do something so unusual with their with their brains for the longest period of time, basically out of anything. It's like extreme athletes of changing their own mind. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so from that perspective, you learn about neuroplasticity, what's possible, like what are actually the bounds yeah. of human experience? Like how, how far can we through our own conscious volition push our experience yeah. and change this system? Yeah. So that's one thing. Now the without, other thing, without drugs, without <laughs> drugs, man, without drugs. <clears throat> yeah, um, a lot of people also doing this kind of research with uh, psychedelics, yeah. also, and I think the combination of them is really interesting. Maybe we can go into that later. But yeah. um, the other thing that's really at heart for me is that we've now gone from this process of looking at these ancient contemplative traditions, right, to seeing what they do from a scientific perspective. So we're going, okay, let's take these things that people designed 2000 years ago that the Buddha designed, um, or people from the Advaita Vedanta tradition designed or whatever Sufism. And then we see what are they doing, um, to the brain. So that this has been sort of the approach, yeah. let's say for the last 50 years, basically. Yeah. So going from the ancient tradition to the science, but I think here's the exciting kind of move is going from the science and then creating New, yeah. new practices so we've gone from the wisdom traditions to the science yeah and slowly as we kind of start to get a picture of this and how they're aff affecting the brain and we understand how the brain works now we can go in the other direction where we actually create empirical paths so paths of practice meditation and self-discovery that are drawn not only from the wisdom traditions but also from the science that we've now developed right and so i think this is this is the yeah future man so exactly um are you also referring to for example developing certain devices that they you could attach to your head or whatever or that would track your movements mm. whatever i don't know yeah and then they would give you feedback or sure i mean that's not the way i'm okay. sort of picturing i mean i, I know there's I know a lot of this no no okay. it's it's a, it's a perfectly reasonable idea and there's a lot of this neurofeedback sort of stuff happening yeah. i am working on 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 some of this stuff too um so for example using these kinds of uh, something that measures your brain activity gives you feedback goes pushes yeah. you in some sort of direction but Personally, I'm quite skeptical of these things. I think they're much too crude yeah. at the moment to actually achieve those kinds of yeah. things. Also, I think contemplative practice is such a kind of subtle art, and it's so different yeah. for each person yeah. that it's it's very um, it's very tricky. So it's not going to be easy to make this transition. No. But I think what it can what we start to get is even in um, we improve our models, basically, which means we improve how we give instruction. I think this is maybe where it's at. So so even in Buddhism and all these traditions, they have models about how the 
mind works. Yeah, right? exactly. They, they, I, they have yeah. Buddhist psychology, and um, exactly, <laughs> and they rely on that to tell people, giving people instructions on how to meditate. So if we can improve those models, exactly, then uh, we also improve the instruction and we improve the meditation. Nice. So to kind of maybe summarize by learning what uh, the brain is doing mm -hmm. during meditation and stuff by analyzing that part of it as mm -hmm. well by by really analyzing uh what people ah so you kind of want to have like you kind of is it that you kind of for example want to know what someone does to get into that no concept kind of field for example and then when the machine is giving you uh the green light of yes mm. this person is now in the mm. non-concept field um then you can go and see which techniques if group a is doing meditation a group b who who is getting there faster well this is exactly one way uh, yeah. so we can also start yeah. to empirically map which techniques are the best yeah right that's that's one thing um and depends on our definition of best yeah exactly. obviously <laughs> but the, but really for me because i also really think of myself as a kind of theoretical scientist as well so yeah for example as soon as i go into doing empirical research first i want to have a solid both internal and and scientific model of what what we're looking at so um in my phd i developed a um the first kind of unifying theory of insight experiences and we've done yeah you know, we've tested over five thousand subjects on that and then also the first scientifically published unifying theory of meditation yeah um so now that we have these scientific models that are built from how we understand the brain works then we can start to use this model to create instructions for how to practice because if you if you know how these meditation techniques are working and you know how how you have a decent idea of how the brain works then you can kind of put these things together and be like okay but there's a simpler route you just go this way you just practice this first then you practice this first then you do this and then you yeah you achieve your yeah. your, your goals and um i think i think that's what, what i'm trying to do yeah exactly <laughs> interesting um yeah and the machines just help here to kind of um get that confirmation uh, mm. of is the person actually in that state which was desirable because you're not gonna maybe wake them up at that well wake them up they're not no. asleep but you're not gonna like get them out of their practice and, right well you, you know. develop the model yeah then you come up with a hypothesis to test okay does this work the way we expect it to work yeah. and then you see if it works so this is the other thing you you develop this these new let's say meditation practice let's yeah. say let's say we from from a combination of the wisdom traditions and the science we develop a new meditation practice or yeah. a, a process a, a kind of scheme of training you want to have that built from an empirical and wisdom foundation but then you also want to test it so it's iterative so now it's not dogmatic either it's like if i come up with a way of doing something i can have people go through it but then you can also test and see if it actually works yeah so then you you have a way of kind of getting iterative yes. feedback to refine these these paths and we can get really um precise yeah. about this and you know it's not that you're trying to cast a blanket over all people because different practices are going to work 
for different people at different stages of, yeah. of practice as well. But all of this can, in theory, yeah. be empirically mapped out. Nice. Right? Maybe you want to move it down a little oh, yeah, bit again. It's, it's floating away from me. Or, or I'm sinking one or the other. There we go. Perfect. Cool. Yeah, guys, I'm not yet very rich from uh, this podcast and my art life as an artist. So my mic stands are still eh, could be improved here and there and uh, just ignore the tie rips here also. Yeah. And, <laughs> Next time you see Navid, he's going to be in a super fancy studio with uh, a full Joe Rogan setup, right? So Joe Rogan setup, yeah, <laughs> for sure. Um, Except cooler. Cooler, yeah, obviously. <laughs> I mean, that guy's getting old too. Well, actually, I, uh, it's funny. It's funny. I kind of feel like uh, Joe Rogan, uh, if you mention him. He's been there. Yeah, really, definitely. Like people like Joe Rogan, Sam Harris, mm. um, now Lex Friedman have been really insp inspirational for me to uh, like the last five years or six, no, longer even. Time flies. Well, something like that. I've been really inspired by their podcast, yeah. but um, at the same time, yeah these days uh, subjects are sometimes very uh you know people's names are tainted or something or oh joe rogan said that oh sam harris said this mm. so now they are uh in camp evil or whatever and yeah, stuff yeah, like yeah. that and uh, i mean i just try to i i just really want to discover how the world works and i uh mm. want to because i also want to do that uh, from a perspective of how do we improve mm. the human and condition, not only the human, but like f for all beings. And I'm, you know, mm. absolutely not claiming that uh, I'm uh, an enlightened and perfectly living person, but I aspire to, you know, do things that yeah. can. And I think those other podcasters, they all also kind of try to do that. Yeah. And uh, sometimes they get it right, sometimes they get it wrong. And as long as you're able to admit when you're getting it wrong. Yeah, yeah, for right? sure. And it's, it's about the intention. And, yeah. and I think that's also why I'm here with you, because... You know, I really feel that your intention for doing this is is in the right place, Thanks. and I, I think also <laughs> inspiration, man. It's it's uh, spirituality, it's rationality, and uh, and inspiration, and inspiration. So yeah, it's it's all the good stuff. Definitely. Um, yeah. Where I, else are we gonna go? Where else are we gonna go? Well, I was thinking. Where's the ship sailing? <laughs> um, I was thinking what you were saying about. Um, uh, that Buddhist traditions actually um, have a uh, where sciences are sciences in themselves. That was exactly what came up in my mind when you started talking about it. Uh, like when you said, well, now we have a scientific way to uh, check which practices work mm -hmm. better and not. And I was thinking, well, actually, you know, a lot of science was already done back then, sure. uh, in, maybe combined with philosophy, etc. But like, I mean, they have certain terms in Buddhism that uh, require like complete, like one word for a certain state in meditation that can be analyzed really deeply to sure. see like the observer looking for itself and not finding itself mm -hmm. and the mindfulness and loving kindness and compassion. All these terms are much deeper than a lot of us understand maybe. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Can I say some things about this? Yeah, then? definitely. Because 
as exactly as you say, like, I mean, Buddhist psychology is huge. And this is just one wisdom tradition. I mean, they, they've mapped this space with ridiculous precision. Yeah, They've tested it. They've they've worked on it. So, so in trying to develop these sort of empirical paths, um, I don't think we're taking away from what they've done. But it's it's a different approach. And I can tell you why. Because what they've done, and what, what this is, I think, why people conflate models of the East and West a lot. Because models of the East tend to be phenomenolo- phenomenological models. They're maps of subjective reality. They're maps of our subjective yeah. experience. So they've, they've created perfect, not perfect, really fantastic categories and practices for deconstructing and understand, understanding the lived experience. Yeah. So then you can talk about things like chakras because they're lived experiences. You can talk right. about all these things that scientists get really upset about, but it's different because it's a phenomenological map. It's a map of our subjective yeah. experience. And this is what they've done an incredible job, richer than Western science is even getting close to. But what they haven't done is what Western science has been doing, which is, you know, working with materialist assumptions and trying to dig into what's actually happening with the with the biology and the neural activity and actually, you know, like chopping up, opening up the head and saying, okay, like right. what's happening in the brain? <laughs> so it's just two different approaches. So you're trying to, we should never try to combine these maps because one is a phenomenological map and one is an obje- objective third person map of things and categories and biological processes there are reductionism basically. So it's the difference between like having an energetic feeling in your stomach because you're doing a particular practice. Now you're referring to the chakra. Yeah, now I'm just referring just to any kind of phenomenological yeah. map or in meditation. And then trying to think, oh, well, that must have a particular association with particular organ or something like that. And if we don't find that exact place where that feeling is emerging, oh, it's not a real thing. No, the, the map of the phenomenology is a real thing, but how that happens objectively could be completely surprising, right? So you might have a feeling of, let's say, the heart center. Anyone who meditates knows that you yeah. get, you feel something in yeah. your heart, and this is an important thing. Well, not anyone who meditates. No, nah, well, anyone, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe now a lot of people okay. will think, oh, shit, I should stop meditating because I ain't feeling anything there. But, uh, okay, I, no, I can get be, be a bit strong there, but <laughs> there's something. that These are things that you discover. You, you discover your own interceptive lived experience in more detail and then suddenly these maps start to make a lot of sense i mean people who practice this this is what you find but how they are mapped in terms of biology can be totally surprising so having a feeling in your heart center now it probably there's some evidence that that could actually be to do with the heart but it could also be to to do with the brain and of course (laughs) right so it's it's this conglomerate of biological processes and actions and interactions that lead to this particular sensation. Yeah. Right? And so we shouldn't conflate the two. There's there's the biological sort of um, reductionist maps, and then there's the phenomenological maps, maps and they're there to complement each other. Yeah. They're not in competition. No. And people think they're in competition. You don't need to choose. You can have your cake and yeah. eat it too in this yeah. respect. And it's, it's two different fields. Um, like the, the thing is... Um, if if you have brain activity and you have experience like you know even if you don't have any meditation practice you can just stare at a color for mm. a f- few minutes and then just really try to focus on it and then the color you will kind of see that it's 
a phenomena mm. and it is uh first you, you'll try to analyze it maybe oh yeah this is the color green well i see the photons mm. etc mm. but that's just all the analysis and mm. that you can explain what is happening in the brain but that's it's like that's one cog wheel turning and then we have the cog wheel of experience of this interface we're in yeah. right now yeah it's kind of like having the screen uh, of a computer and never having like if you never follow and, and you see all the icons and all the programs are running and at one point you decide like hey let me follow this cable down from this screen oh it's going into a whole system and you open it up and you're yeah. like whoa there's all these circuit boards and stuff so then you have the sort of the mind there and yeah. then the brain heart body etc exactly so that that's a perfect analogy yeah. yeah indeed i mean you've got the hardware you got the software and then you got what appears on the screen yeah, yeah. but then uh, uh, one thing though that you said about um that um like the the buddhists for example were very focused on the phenomenologies of mm. experience and maybe behavior mm. and that they were doing their own kind of understanding and science there but yeah. it's t like totally different from the uh, biological kind of uh uh an analysis that we can do nowadays but at the same time also um what about that they couldn't also uh do the behavioral uh experimentation with mm. like more rigorously or with more scientific uh significance yeah. and statistical yeah. uh like you know so still with behavior, you can also be more... Uh, you can be more rigorous, for sure. Yeah. So this is this is a beautiful point. And, and this is what you can do as well. So you can also take these, again, meditation techniques perhaps developed from these uh, wisdom traditions and actually test them under experimental conditions. Yeah. Because the scientific process is, is a... It's kind of beautiful as an idea. I mean, all it is, is just being really freaking careful. Right? <laughs> yes. It's like, okay, I want to know something... So there's nothing mysterious about it. It's just I'm going to do it really carefully. Yeah. I'm going to keep doing it over and over again to make sure that we get the same thing. And then I'm going to test it statistically to make sure that those differences yeah. that I find are real. That's it. Yeah. And it's the same if you want to find out like whether a shampoo works or something. Like You just try <laughs> this shampoo a lot, then you try this shampoo a lot, yeah. and then you measure actually what's yeah. it doing to the, to the hair, exactly. and you get the result. I mean, it's the same thing. You just apply it to any phenomena in the world. And so you get this... Um, so, so this sort of scientific attitude within within reason is really a a, a beautiful mechanism yeah. that we can apply to also improve um, contemplative practices yeah. but when i say that i also want to acknowledge that um when it comes to to meditation it's um and also self-discovery it's um there's this deep part of it that is also an art and that is developed through expertise so i, I don't think we're ever going to replace for example the teacher like having having yeah. having a teacher and a long-term personal relationship with someone who knows you personally who knows the trajectory of meditative experience who can be there holding your hand guiding the way for you as an individual yeah. and bringing their particular um lived experience um to life with you i don't think we're ever going to get rid of that nor do we want to because there's so so much information that i think probably scientifically we're not going to be able to pick up and that is the things like that the teacher and the student can resonate with each other feel okay this is the direction here's where you need to look um all of this is is so so important still so yeah 
It is. And at the same time, uh, to be the devil's advocate, I'm thinking, isn't that a kind of an unscientific thing to say that we will never replace the teacher with a, I don't know, robot? But why would we <laughs> want to also? I mean, because you can bring the you can bring the teacher into the scientific process because what you may find and i would put my money on this eventually you find that as it goes with psychotherapy it's less about the in many cases it's actually less about the tool and more about the person and the relationship so this is but if, if you know that if you know for example that the teacher from the data is really important then you can start to quantify which teachers you, you want to work yeah, with also true. so you can also have good teacher trainings and you can you can build that into the scientific process and build the human into uh, into the testing procedure mm. yeah yeah i yeah i i understand what you're saying but this mm. is kind of maybe uh referring to where we are right now right mm. because maybe right now we are human beings in a body of flesh and blood and mm. we love interacting with each other mm. and stuff but as we move forward and as science moves forward and if we don't completely destroy ourselves of mm. course uh, science might take us to a place where uh, this body isn't also going to be uh, as necessary anymore for consciousness and experience to happen maybe we can uh, yeah i'm dr dragging well, it far now but maybe yeah. even like being able to have a robot which is coming and not saying hello i want you to meditate but as <laughs> more natural <laughs> okay now there are already robots which are far more uh, oh, yeah, interesting yeah, yeah. than that obviously yeah you could have a robot guiding your meditation or something yeah, like that i mean with the perfect voice tone and the perfect music it's sort of this algorithmic sort of guided meditation this. yeah probably <laughs> so so i i can totally imagine that happening but um there's one point and this could get us into models of consciousness but the role of the body and whether we'll have some way of existing also doing meditation practice that doesn't uh, involve the body as much as it does now and i i think this is perhaps this um comes from a kind of assumption habit that we have in the west to to conflate or to think that everything is to do with the brain or to reduce yeah. consciousness awareness oh, yeah. all of these things to you know just to neural processes whereas you know in 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 neuroscience now there's this big movement of um for e-cognition which is uh, in, involves for e-cognition i'm probably okay. going to forget one of these now but there's enactment embodiment um uh yeah so that's that's i'm already forgetting the <laughs> rest of them two other e's <laughs> what are they experience i don't know no anyway but the main main gist of we don't have things. like jamie on joe rogan jamie pull that up <laughs> There's no JV, dude. <laughs> but it also counts one of those things. It's like, you know, I'm going to forget what they are. And so then automatically I forget this is sort of this suppression thing yeah, that so happens in the brain. But anyway, so what, what this, this movement of for recognition, um, the two things that I anyway pay att most attention to is embodiment and enactment. That is to say that the brain is not something that's separate from the body. It's something that we've reified into an object, a separate, you know, we've just drawn some somewhat arbitrary lines around this particular organ and then we're like okay it's all happening here right yeah. and this comes from this real um habit of reductionism but really what we know is if you, i mean just think about it. if you take that little organ and you just put it in a room by itself a dark room nothing's gonna happen man nothing's gonna do nothing yeah it's useless right <laughs> so it's it's through the embodiment the nervous system and the interaction with the world and each other our social relationships our culture everything that we do that gives rise to the kind of consciousness that we have 
And so I it's, it, yeah. it's, this experience isn't reducible. It's, it's not something I think we can, um, you know, upload onto a computer or something like that. Mm, that last one, I, I'm not so sure of, but I think before we can even upload it to a computer, we have to maybe like be sure that we are actually uploading the consciousness into the computer instead mm. of the computer just pretending mm. because of all the machine learning that it has done and yeah, yeah. where the lights are out right like where mm. there's just a zombie world and uh, yeah. the machines are pretending they're conscious and the human race is gone yeah. and, i mean <laughs> but, oh, that, you paint a good picture <laughs> there, yeah. but uh, one yeah. thing I, I would even be maybe careful to formulate it in a way to say and I'm pretty sure you probably agree with me on this one, but it's just the way you said it, like, um, to give rise to consciousness. Like, we have the brain and the uh, all the organs attached to it and all the sensory systems and the whole body, basically, and the world interacting. And that gives rise to consciousness. That uh, the idea, maybe, you know, that kind of the thing I, I find a bit problematic is if, if, if we would... Um, I, I find it difficult to, to see that consciousness arises out of matter. Like, hmm. uh, there, there is at one point you have a brain and then you add two eyes to it and then there is consciousness or something like that. Because if you look at trees, uh, the, how they communicate under the ground with their, with all sorts of, um, yeah molecules and food and they give more food to their own offspring but they also help the little other trees with mm -hmm. their roots and how they come like i mean is there consciousness there do they have the lights mm. on there where do we like how far back do we go mm. and uh is a fly conscious is a, a is this button here does it have mm. a form of experience it just kind of because it's so hard to draw the line where this stops in my idea no, i'm not saying i'm not saying this light thing is conscious I, yeah. I i just don't know where experience starts and to yeah. say it just arises I, I don't think that's what you were saying but that's kind of the thought that no indeed and yeah, th this sort of spectrum of the evolution of consciousness, the potential that consciousness is something that's evolving in a process and, and that maybe it popped up at some point. It's, it's, it's an interesting thing. And, and what comes up for me there is that I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to articulate this, but consciousness and what we conflate with consciousness is a lot to do with the contents the actual things that happen in conscious yeah. experience, right? Oh, yeah. So this is a lot to do with the richness of our actual, the aspects or the things that are happening in our conscious experience. And this is what this sort of highly evolved brain that we have allows us to do because of conceptualization. And because of conceptualization, basically, the tendency to abstract, we're able to have an idea about ourselves. We're able to develop an ego through our development. I'm able to have a conversation with you using language. Um, I'm able to have an embodied experience. I'm able to represent my embodied experience. Yeah. And also your embodied experience. I can start to get an, uh, make inferences about what's happening inside of you. This is what makes our consciousness maybe richer because yeah, of yeah. the content. So you get this Definitely, sort of yeah. potential of evolution in the richness of the conscious contents yeah. of experience i think that's that's not so debatable i mean because our, the richness of our conscious experience is going to be certainly better than a flies or there's going to be more happening just the the, the degrees of freedom the breadth of our experience is so much wider the possibilities are wild i mean we can fly to the moon and have an experience of the earth from yeah. thousands of kilometers above the ground 
but the flyer has this very limited set of possibilities in its conscious experience. But then a bat has infrared vision. <laughs> right. We can't yeah. really imagine yeah. what that is And then you've got like. octopuses that can do crazy oh, shit yeah. as well. You know, it's all, Whales and dolphins right. and how they communicate with yeah. each other. So I'm not saying we're superior in that respect, and especially in terms <laughs> of our sensory processing, but almost certainly now conceptual processing, we're really advanced. Yeah. But there's, there's, this is the important distinction. It's between the richness of the contents of conscious experience versus consciousness itself or even better in my opinion is the word awareness right right so this is this is the thing that makes us equal to everything potentially this is let's just say a thought thought experiment but we can have really rich contents of experience Mm-hmm. all of our concepts all of the things i listed before my body your body i can have a conversation this room i can experience all of this and all its rich detail i can even talk about it conceptualize about it but at the heart of it i am simply aware of the contents so there's consciousness of the awareness of the contents that is similar to what the fly has even the fly or even an amoeba or you know some some really simple single-celled organism even if their conscious contents of experience is very simple, it's sort of, I don't know what they're saying, but some very basic pixelated sort of view of reality. Um, they still have the awareness of those contents. And we also have the awareness of the contents of our experience. Yeah. And so on that level, awareness, the capacity to be conscious, right? This is something that could be equal across the animal, maybe even plant kingdom. Yeah. And awareness is something also in sci- in the scientific world that's only kind of now um, we're really doing research on awareness. That is awareness without contents, especially. Or what is it to mm. actually just be aware without conflating that with the thing that we're aware of, right? Can that even exist? Like, I'm so maybe uh into <laughs> i'm so used to my interface uh, yeah, yeah. W- which is normal as a human being i guess mm. that i can't i've thought about this about awareness without mm. contents so or you can go the other way you can just recognize that awareness isn't content you don't need to go into a state where content is gone you can just have an experience of content and see well that's different from the awareness of that content so I, I I can see this microphone, yeah, but I'm aware of the seeing of the microphone, and that awareness is just awareness. So that awareness is the same. If I'm looking at you, I'm looking at the microphone, I'm looking at this chair, the content changes, but it's happening in the same space or the same knowing, the same yeah. experience of knowing that it's a thing. Yeah. So you can even see that awareness is something different, unique, worth investigation both from a phenomenological perspective but also scientific and of course the wisdom traditions of non-duality buddhism they place a huge emphasis on awareness and the discovery of this you know non-dual awareness at the heart of um, all the kind of contents of our consciousness yeah Yeah. that's a lot (laughs) yeah i i was thinking where i wanted to well i think the the thing is um if you remove all content, this okay, maybe this you're, you were trying to make me not go down that path, but I just don't see 
another another path maybe mm. well if the thing is if you remove imagine that there is really no signal no piece of color no little mm -hmm. thought no dream no smell nothing aren't we then just like uh unconscious like you know like someone under anesthesia like i've been under full anesthesia yeah. and that was really like uh, you know the doctor he put a syringe here and then uh, i was mm. looking at my mom's face and then i felt like a cold i was a kid then a mm. cold stream going up and when it hit here i was gone and then i was immediately awake again and it was beyond the surgery it mm. was like nothing had happened in between so yeah. um well it's a, it's a beautiful analogy that uh, uh, the anesthetic because that is a kind of a drug-induced deconstruction everything just disappears yeah. the, the the tendency for the brain to create the embodied brain to create our subjective experience slowly melts away and we disappear it's similar as we go into deep sleep right yeah but so then you things, dream at one point maybe in the rem or, sleep phase yeah, yeah. You, you dream but what they say in the wisdom traditions right um and i've interacted with a lot of meditators yeah. who do this I, also speaking some somewhat from my own experience if you deconstruct your experience as you say start to get rid of the contents which is sort of what some of these meditation techniques do. You're not trying to get rid of it in the sense of fighting. You're just letting the, letting the dust settle, let's say. When you let the dust settle, this creates the situation where awareness can come to the forefront. Instead of being sort of the background knowing of your perceptions, yeah. by bringing the perceptions into stillness and peace and silence and ease and letting go of our constant habitual tendency to conceptualize... Then this awareness, because there's nothing left to distract the system, awareness comes online and becomes discovered, you could say. And so then when awareness is discovered... By awareness. By awareness itself. Awareness is discovered by awareness. Yes. And then whenever... Yeah, continue. <laughs> well, this this is the idea. So just as your intuition yeah. was that you you you... It helps to reduce these contents. But then you said, you know, okay, then you end up unconscious. And that's possible too. It's actually possible to deconstruct yourself all the way until you go unconscious. This is called yeah. cessation. Well, nirvana, right? The term nirvana isn't that referring to that in Buddhist tradition. Like the full enlightenment mm. could mean complete light, but it could also mean complete darkness in a way. I don't know. Yeah, beyond both the ideas of light and darkness, ah, you could yeah, say. So yeah. it's the such an absence yeah. of our usual conceptualization that it, it does it's it's that's why they yeah. talk about the unnameable the unconditioned <laughs> the unknowable yeah. the beyond yeah these kinds of words are there to capture that but in allowing the system to deconstruct to such a state of dis discovering nirvana let's say or let's just call that the beyond beyond the concepts beyond the habits of the mind yeah then the question is what remains What is positively actually present after that happens and when reality reconstructs and you are able to watch reality reconstruct from the perspective right. of the okay. of the beyond of awareness itself. Whoa. <laughs> this this has seriously <laughs> been a topic I've I just I I've had different ideas about. Um but it never really I don't know, you made it kind of land that there is something to find there. At one point, I just found it too difficult. Like, I, I, I do different meditation practices as, um, you know, both for what people would say just to be, become a better person or have less stress, but also mainly like to discover some 
mm. things in the mind, like, you mm. know, all these traditions do, like using the subjective experience mm. to learn about the interface. But I, I just, I couldn't see a way to, to, mm. to uh, say anything uh, meaningful about this. But, uh, well, you just did, <laughs> sort of. I, <laughs> I'm glad it landed a little yeah, bit. Yeah, a little bit. And, yeah. and the beautiful thing about it is, from the perspective of the brain, but also these wisdom traditions, all that is there is already there. Yeah. And because the, the brain is constructing everything away from the here and now, basically what the brain is doing is creating abstractions based on the past. I mean, in order to have any experience, the brain uses past experience to build the current moment. Yeah. Literally every experience that we've had is constructed based on the past. Yeah. So when people say, just be in the present moment, actually, this is this thing. There is no such thing yeah, as the yeah, present yeah. moment. <laughs> Both from the deep perspective of these wisdom traditions, but also from science, we know that they're actually we also go beyond the present moment. Because yeah. the present moment, as we usually conceptualize it as our sort of sensory experience, our experiences of the body, these are also concepts. Actually, they're actually yeah. also abstractions of, of the brain. And so somehow oh, the system... Yeah. And this is, this is the sort of... You know, we all hear be here and be here now, you know, as the famous book by Ram Dass yeah. just says be here. Yeah, yeah, now. yeah. That's yeah. it. But that's kind of this sort of wild ideal because from the brain's perspective, being in the here and now is annihilation. And we should just be be. Even be. I mean, but it's, it's, a, it's a perfect ideal because you can never achieve it. And to achieve <laughs> it is to, to disappear. Because yeah. to be here now, to be truly here now is to not exist yeah. on some level. Yeah. But what does exist? That's that's sort of because your concept of you as a human is being gone. is gone. Right. Yeah, this kind of reminds me also of the things people kind of describe when they. Um, uh, Terence McKenna, he, mm. uh, yeah, famously I think said uh, talked about the five dried grams of mushrooms mm. uh, trip, like go yeah. blindfolded. The heroic dose. Yeah, eat five dried grams of mushrooms, all the psilocybin, yeah, exactly, will mm. uh, get you to a point where after, like, you go into, there is no more person tripping, mm. it's just one trip, and then the trip gets into realms that mm. um, otherwise would never be even reached. And I think a lot of yeah. people, maybe, I've never even heard people actually deeply describing it. They mm. just, it kind of becomes at one point, they just go like to the things I've heard, at least like from, okay, so first um, there was maybe a little bit of a trip and then I I was gone, everything mm. was gone. And then they mm. described the landing back. Yeah, exactly. And and that's when you, yeah. This is the same with advanced meditators yeah. because eventually you go beyond the effable yeah. into the ineffable. You're going into realms of experience that are no longer comprehensible based on the concepts that we have. We simply do not have, and this is something Terence McKenna talked about a lot. He wanted to create a new language because yeah. he's like, our language is too constrained to this sort of flimsy layer of our conscious experience that as soon as you expand outside of this basic scope that we're constrained into yeah. now, we just simply don't have the 
the ideas we don't have the concepts the models to be able to make sense of it yeah and so in some way we not only in order to talk about these things we actually need to expand our conceptual space entirely as well so it's not only expanding our (laughs) conscious experience with it has to expand the mind the conceptual lingual space also well this is interesting because there are other things that um uh, go well beyond language, mm-hmm. of course, and well beyond um, maybe. Well, uh, what I'm talking about now is music, I mm-hmm. guess, because mm-hmm. that's a language I also like to speak in. Mm-hmm. I always say, you know, when I'm DJing, also uh, I speak with the audience in the language of music, and they communicate back with dance. And there is oh. so much happening there that you can't always no. describe. That's beautiful. I wanted to also say that Navid is like my favorite <laughs> ecstatic dance oh DJ ever. <laughs> okay, <laughs> it's so good. It's so wild. It's so uh, unpredictable, and that's what makes it you know beautiful. And that is, I think, because you're you're kind of pushing, and you have this dialectic with with the the dancers that you yeah. that you're working about, and and that's in that's ineffable on a level. But I would say if you look at any experience in a deep way, it's fundamentally ineffable. Yeah, that's fundamentally. Yeah. I mean, any experience that we're having in our bodies or in this in this in this moment or the fact that we're having a live conversation, we can't really ever explain it. We can't really put it into concepts. It's fundamentally mysterious. I mean, it's Yeah. We pretend to and we're kind of satisfied with that concept. <laughs> but, well, somewhat satisfied, but ultimately it's we yeah. live in an ineffable reality. Yeah. This is yes, this is I I really hope that people really can understand what we mean by this. Um, I think uh, a, a lot of people might be able to do that because of their own experiences, either mm. with meditation or just sudden insights or mm. uh, psychedelic drugs or whatever. Or you know, but mm. at the same time, um, it's interesting when when I like try to talk about concepts like the fundamental inexplainability of Mm. uh, experience or when I talk about try to talk about non-duality so with non-duality in this conversation we mean when there is no more observer and Mm. observed but there is just everything is just observation without any observer in it Mm. so but but like trying to explain these things Mm. um Sometimes people think you're a bit of a prick because you're like, oh, oh, you're the enlightened guy. And you're like, yeah, but guys, I don't know if you get what I mean. You know, they're like, yeah, okay, someone has meditated now and now mm. has become enlightened and ooh, you've seen reality. Mm. Uh, it it kind of, I'm just, you know, exaggerating yeah. a bit, but it can trigger some sort of uh, mm. mechanism of either people thinking that you're just uh, kind of biased and you think you've seen something mm. uh, w- w- which not is not there maybe or they just kind of are like well um whatever we haven't seen it so it doesn't matter to us Mm -hmm. or they might have seen it or they're not interested i mean this Mm -hmm. is this or they they they're super interested and luckily that happens a lot too and you can Mm -hmm. just have a conversation about it Mm -hmm. or it goes beyond conversation where there is no words to describe these things but Mm um I yeah, don't know. I mean, what's your experience with this? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I never try to talk about these things. If they if they come up, I allow them to come up. Um, yeah. But but everyone's traversing these things in different ways. And and for some people, 
the discovery of this thing called non-dual awareness isn't what they're interested in. It's it's not it, it's not necessarily on their path now. Maybe not even later, or maybe it is something that they're they're on their way towards. Yeah. You know, there's so many important things in the conceptual and the contemplative space to discover. There's so it's such a vast thing to be self-aware. There's these beautiful things to discover, like non-dual awareness, but there's also amazing things to discover about our personalities, about our emotions, about how to re- regulate our emotions, and these things are like just as important. Yeah, I, I, my sense is that if we discover kind of these foundational things, like awareness itself, and we we kind of shift our identity outside of this the, the the ego, that gives us a platform to also do the other stuff really well, which is to learn how our minds work, learn how how our bodies work, because they they build a kind of bit of equanimity in the system because it's less identified. It yeah. builds a kind of dereification. But it's not strictly necessary. Yeah. It's possible to get really profound personal and interpersonal progress through contemplative practice without ever mentioning the word non-duality or yeah. consciousness it's it's like some some of us are just more interested in understanding things also intellectually yeah. but other people you know if they're in a devotional path where they have a guru yeah. and they're just devoted they can go super far just through a different route of the system it's through their surrender through their open-hearted mm, yeah. service that the system is able to transform yeah. ultimately i mean because what we do want to eventually do i think is to transform the system fundamentally so that we are free of suffering and then we can free other people from suffering yeah right? yeah so for some people this the analytic part is just not it's just not important yeah also it's true no. <laughs> well um that's fine too yeah. i guess i mean uh eventually yeah because if the goal is to have a society of human beings and other creatures etc where there is uh, suffering is yeah, drastically reduced mm. um, than the people who are interested in um, what else is there in the mind to discover can just go down that path and exactly. if, if it's good enough to to learn what it is to be a good human being and be able mm. to do the things you're interested in and not cause harm that's good Mm. I guess um, the thing uh, with not suffering uh, or a world without suffering uh, brings up a, a kind of a different uh, topic in my mind because uh, I was having uh, this conversation uh, with someone from uh, ecstatic dance. So mm. uh, yeah, ecstatic dance is where I DJ for people who uh, yeah, don't know it. And uh, it's really a free form of dance. People come like completely sober for to dance for two hours uh, without speaking with each other. And I just go anywhere with the music from very ambient-y, trippy stuff to world music, up-tempo, really hard, hard shit. I, I like to go. <laughs> Some DJs maybe go a bit this. I can confirm. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so that's... But someone I know from there, I had a conversation... Uh, uh, with her because i i kind of also i just fr- from an artistic point of view uh i i really like dark movies dark mm-hmm. music also mm-hmm. uh like i don't know metal and like things that relate to you know satan and evil mm-hmm. and stuff like that and i kind of you know it's just it's it's interesting or if you have really like uh movies from uh 
directors like Quentin Tarantino mm. or more underground, maybe Lars von Trier or mm -hmm. Gaspar Noé, where there's also a lot of craziness happening. Um, where I want to go with this is that uh, if there is a world without suffering, will darkness uh, disappear from art? <laughs> That's the kind yeah. of conversation we were having. That was the yeah. question. And she was kind of like, yeah, well, and uh, it kind of made me sad because she kind of sounded like that she wouldn't mind if that would happen or something because mm -hmm. I was kind of defending the dark side, so to say. Mm -hmm. um, and she was defending the light side. But then I was like, yeah, but, you know, it's nice to have mm -hmm. uh, things like fear and pain. But mm -hmm. I'm not saying that it's nice that if people are suffering, it's just that those concepts also exist and we can have yeah. a rich experience by, I don't know. Yeah, I, th I think um, this... For anything to exist, you need this duality, right? You you need the light and the mm. dark in order for things to exist because you can't have yes without no and you, you can't have a positive, pleasurable experience without there existing kind, some form of the negative of that experience. I mean, all these things exist on a spectrum. So I'm not, from my perspective, the goal isn't to reduce the spectrum of our experience, mm -hmm. but to reduce the extent to which we suffer our experience. Yeah. Because we suffer unnecessarily our experience enormously yeah. right because someone can have the two people can have the exact same experience one person suffers it deeply the other person doesn't suffer it at all they, yeah they, exactly. they love it right yeah. like you love this these dark stuff and other people have that same experience yeah. they're like this is terrible and they start getting anxious or whatever it exactly. is exactly but the idea is that through these let's say contemplative practices whatever it is we can start to not suffer our experience of those things and that's really different so it's unnecessary suffering suffering that often comes from our overinterpretation of it yeah. or our fundamentally incapacity to differentiate the awareness of the thing from the thing we're identified with yeah. our consciousness this yeah. is the problem awareness is identified with the things that are happening in it we think we are that pain exactly. forever and ever exactly. <laughs> rather than just it's a it's a it's an appearance yeah. it's an appearance yeah and obviously we're not it's clear that certain behavior from people still cause suffering. It's not to say, and this is maybe a path that certain gurus have mm. gone down on where they're like, hey, man, if I beat up my students or do mm. uh, other stuff to them, uh, it's all part of your process, mm. you know, learn to deal with it. Like, you know, oh, mm. oh, you feel that I hurt your feelings. You feel that I mm. abused mm. you. Mm. Well, that's good because you learn from it. But that's not like... no. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend that. <laughs> I wouldn't. That sounds terrible. Unless you, well, yeah, uh, unless it's some sort of a game you're playing or something, and you've signed yeah. up for it. Or I mean, whatever. it's it's a, this is a huge topic of conversation. Yeah. I mean, like in the Tibetan tradition of Buddhism, they have what's called crazy wisdom. So the idea that one who has really knows their own mind, they might express themselves in certain ways that seem triggering or surprising to the observer, but actually there's this sort of skillful means, there's this kind of skillful method that they're using to actually wake the student up. And this is, I mean, you hear stories about this in the Zen tradition a lot as well. Like there's lots of hilarious Zen stories of these Zen masters yeah, yeah. hitting their students, killing cats, whatever, to awaken the student. Because, you know, you can imagine yeah. a situation that you meet a student they're, they're stuck in some particular way right they're just stuck in some really annoying yeah. way and the best thing to wake them up is just to like scream at them smack them yeah. out of it. just <laughs> smack them out of it just you know i'll give you this brief bit of suffering to to get you out 
But I think this is a these are kind of rare instances where that yeah. sort of wisdom is actually plays out in the way that you want it to. And it certainly shouldn't be used as an excuse for unethical action. Yeah. And this comes into like beautiful models from, for example, Ken Wilber of growing up versus waking up. Whoops. Um, <laughs> where you can, you know, you can make advancements in, in meditative practice and in, in, in the waking up part of it. But there's also maturity as a human being. There's also having a clear set of values and growing as a moral kind of um, yeah. agent. So, you, but... Um, you would say that uh, sometimes uh, it's uh, uh, it can be helpful if uh, someone uh, is externally hurt by a teacher or something in a way, but like sure, I mean potentially. I mean, think about all the experiences that have made you a better person. Most true. of them are hard, right? Yeah, They're, they 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 are yeah. a struggle. And and if I think about my relationship with my Zen teacher for over ten years now. Um, basically, he's just there to tell me that my bullshit is nothing. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, 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 yeah, I don't think I've ever gotten kind of a, a pat on the back for yeah. anything yeah, yeah, in yeah, this yeah. time uh, that I've been practicing. It's just you know you, you go to this person who you, who's just there to be a mirror. You bring your crap. You think you've found some interesting spiritual experiences, and you're like, check this out. How cool is this? And they're like. <laughs> that's nothing don't worry about it and you're yeah. like oh and then you go back until you stop doing that yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so it's it's not there the, the teacher is certainly not there to just um you know pat up your ego i mean it's yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a hard hard journey to yeah. to give up our projections and it's a it's, it's, a, it's a lifelong journey yeah yeah, yeah. I uh I remember like when I went uh, on uh, Vipassana I never I never managed to do like a 7 day meditation uh, mm -hmm. thing uh, uh, maybe someday in the future I don't know, even know if that's really what I'm mostly interested in but mm -hmm. uh, uh I yeah it, I mean you know what you're signing up for but mm -hmm. the moment well I was there and I after the first day I already like I I was like no I just want to get out of here when I discovered like okay the, this is years ago and I was really also not I didn't have much experience with meditation at all I just mm. thought yeah let's do a seven day uh, retreat and I was there and uh, when I found out that I had read all the little signs in the building uh, okay nothing else to read and then I was like let's take a walk in the garden mm. and it stops after fifty meters I was so confronted with. Uh, mm the reality of yep you are just here with your mm. own bullshit and you're just gonna sit with it and there's nothing else to mm. do and mm. you don't make contact with the others and stuff mm. then i something in me was like let's go let's go let's go and i i quit like <laughs> and um so but it's profoundly difficult yeah it goes against everything that we're taught to sit quietly it goes yeah. against every evolutionary response to continue pr the pursuit of whatever it is sex money power our pleasurable experiences in our body to just suddenly just have all of that taken away and saying hey no i'm going to sit completely still i mean it just goes against the whole survival response of the yeah. body so there's things that come up in that moment are super deep yeah, yeah. Do you think it's uh, really uh, a requirement to be able to, or to be able to, to have practiced uh, this long sitting for people to mm. um, really benefit the deepest from contemplative practices? Or mm. do you think? 
some well some habits die really hard yeah <laughs> yeah and in my experience it's it's possible to have sudden discoveries it, it's possible to have moments of profound progress yeah for sure but usually the old habits they come flooding back in so we can have a temporary experience of some sort of profound insight um but unless those habits of of prediction of inference of the mind and the and and the body are tamed through doing this over and over again clarifying 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 they tend to come back and they come back with force because they want to stick they want to be there i mean it's 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 a homeostatic process everything that exists wants to continue to exist and that includes these habits of our yeah. of our mind but that that said i don't think it needs to be a painful process mm. so some traditions like you take Goenka Vipassana. Yeah, exactly. You're Holy freaking sh- sitting there body scan. This is the first retreat I also did. You sit there for, you know, whatever, 10 hours a day for 10 days and all you do is scan your body. That's freaking brutal, man. Yeah. And it's and it's painful. And it's in my opinion, it's... And I say this with a lot of humility because I don't know for sure, but to me, it's not that quick. Like, I, I just think it's a, it's, it's a route where you really do go through things and you face everything in a in a very detailed way. But... It's there, there's a lot of suffering to pass through. Eventually, the practice would develop to a point for sure where that suffering diminishes considerably. But it's still a huge investment of time as well. And I, and if anyone's drawn to vipassana, I think hell yeah, do it. Actually, I, I'm a vipassana meditator myself as well. Just not not body scanning per se, but okay. Still, body scanning. If that's that's what you're into, hell yeah, keep going. That's <laughs> that's gonna help. But if that's not what you're into. Yeah, there are so many different ways to do this. This is like a tiny aspect of the vipassana path is the Goenka vipassana. Even within the vipassana tradition, which is just one tradition of Buddhism, which is just Buddhism, and there's this whole contemplative yeah, field. Yeah. There's the spectrum of practices is so enormous; it's like incomprehensible. But in the West, we've gotten a little bit caught in this Goenka yeah. vipassana because it's accessible which is so beautiful you created this incredible system where you can go sit for free for 10 days and you have centers all over the world it's, yeah it's a huge service to humanity yeah but that doesn't work for a lot of people yeah both because of the suffering it can cause especially in the initial retreats but also if you have any tendency towards psychosis or these kinds of oh, things yeah, then it's, you, it's yeah, too yeah, hectic yeah. It's just you also sign up hectic. that you can do it if you, yeah yeah and some people don't know that these things are latent oh, yeah. but they're, they're very open in this way and so there's so many different practices that are potentially so much more like heart-based, so much more calming, so much more peaceful, um, so much more in the domain of being, of presence, of of gentle inquiry into your own nature that are so profound, so deep, and actually, I think, go beyond Vipassana eventually. Vipassana also goes there, but yeah. through a particular round, because... One one way you can think of what's happening in Vipassana is that you begin with, first of all, focused attention practice. So now you take your attention, you focus on one thing. This is like the first thing you do in the first two days of Vipassana, Vipassana retreat, right? You focus the mind. So you bring the mind down to a, a quieter place. It's, it's a little bit quieter. Then you um, start to practice Vipassana in order to gain insight into anatta, anicca, and dukkha impermanent suffering and not self Mm -hmm. and so you start to see that all the phenomena of your experience don't have are made up of these characteristics you start to see that they're kind of spontaneous you don't have control of them there's no self nature to them it's it's not you basically yeah so you start to disidentify from your sensory experience but there's something very fundamental still left which is that which is observing the experience 
And this mm-hmm. is also a construct that needs to be given up. And so after seeing that the phenomena is like this, then one also deconstructs the observer. So one also starts to practice mindfulness of the observer at the later ends of Vipassana practice. Yeah. But but, but then yeah. But just to say just to finish this thought, it's like you go through this gradual deconstruction, but to get to that stage of deconstructing the observer, you you, you might be practicing for decades. Yeah. This sort of Vipassana approach. Other practices, they kind of skip the putting the attention out and they actually start to inquire about attention itself the observer itself where does it all come from where is this experience coming from and and who's observing it and if you can do that with a tranquil mind and with some samatha so some 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 already stability and focus in presence and being then it's possible i think to go to the same places but um with less painful body scanning and uh, yeah. meditation and yeah. you know this this is a, an empirical question something we can uh, do in the lab but as someone who and you know i'm i'm only 30 years old so i have still so much to learn but i have really been this person who jumps from these different meditation traditions but like i'm kind of obsessive so when i dive into something <laughs> i like go all the way like i'll find the best teacher i can i'll sit and i'll i'll do it like crazy like, yeah I, as you know, I was a kickboxer before this. So I t- took this kind of mentality, yeah, yeah. a fighter into it, which is terrible in some ways. And in other ways, it's, it's useful. But in my experience, there's, uh, there's softer routes. But there, there, the thing is, there's also unique things to be discovered through, for example, these outward sort of meditations like Vipassana of putting the attention. Because then you learn, learn how the energetic system works. You learn how the body works. You learn these three characteristics with more detail. So if you go, for example, into non-duality and the Advaita Vedanta traditions. Yeah, that's more direct in my experience. It goes, it's I, goes yeah. straight to the source, like go, 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 go. But if the system doesn't stabilize and have enough insight about how it all works... It, it, it maybe doesn't always land. It doesn't become embodied. It doesn't become something that one can yeah. live. And, and, and it can be so destabilizing for the mind also to go straight to the source, to go like straight into self-inquiry, to go straight into questioning your existence. If the mind is not already tranquil and peaceful, that can just be destabilizing. This can send people into dissociative states, um, all these kinds of states, which are really easy to oh, mistake yeah. for the real thing. <laughs> You know, and there's a lot of research now on meditation and the negative effects of meditation. You, yeah. you have so many people going depersonalization, deeper um, dissociation, also psychosis, because they're either don't have the right guidance, they um, went into it too intensely, they're doing the wrong technique. You know, any co- combination of things, also yeah. their past, whatever it is. But, but it just means that. W- it's a very subtle art in order to be able to traverse our own consciousness in a way that's wise and healthy and balanced and gets the best outcomes. Yeah. So, but do you think that the da- the danger is so real of uh, uh, doing meditation in a way that harms you? That do you think? I mean, real as in, is it so? Um, does is does it ha- happen so often that uh, people? I mean, for most people, meditation will not really lead them into. Yeah. Or, well, another it, another perspective is that. As the path progresses, you pass through dark night. Most people pass yeah. through the dark night, and um, because the, the thing is, if if you're if you meditate enough, and you're in even just simply just being in the here and now enough, you're eventually 
the self-construct is going to get a mortal blow. Our idea of ourself is going to be threatened in a way it's never been threatened before. We're going to die before we die, basically. Yeah. And so to come face to face with that, it's such an existential crisis or it can be such an existential crisis that I think most people will actually pass through a phase in their practice that is has some constituents some symptoms that resemble psychopathology like i I think i think if we don't pass (laughs) i think you're not meditating very hard almost if you're not passing through some psychopathology i'm not saying please don't go for psychopathology but there's going to be (laughs) things that arise during meditation and we should know that we should be expecting yeah shit's gonna get wild yeah and very well could get wild at some point and then it's really important to talk to the teacher it's really important to to get the feedback that you need or then see a psychologist. And it's really important to know that these things are going to happen so that the system doesn't respond in trauma. Because one way to think about the traumatic response is that new input comes to the system and it's fucking terrifying. So then you retract and the system retracts and goes into fear and then and, and dissociates basically. So this is a kind of traumatic response. And if you, if something existentially terrifying appears, but you, knew it was coming then the organism the brain is already prepared to integrate it right so having this knowledge is so important so important and you know in these traditions they they train people with the background the 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 philosophy the models of the mind that they know that these are there but a lot of the people coming into meditation from the west don't don't know that these experiences can happen so, right because yeah, yeah, yeah. we were like i'll oh, be here now and you're just gonna feel really yeah. like calm and you've got all this you know yeah advent of yoga but it's it's not it's not a small thing like if you're yeah. gonna be in the here and now you're gonna deconstruct yourself and eventually <laughs> you're gonna disappear and shit's gonna change your whole yeah. life is gonna change and and we should know that it's 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 not a small thing to be practicing mindfulness and if you're going to really do it yeah things can happen yeah but it's worth it. It's so, so worth it. <laughs> For yeah. most people, you yeah. would say. And so the main message to take away from this piece of uh, this uh, warning, <laughs> yeah, this rant, <laughs> is to, uh, to like meditate. It's good for you. Mm. You can discover things. Uh, but if you already know, like, okay, exactly. If you already know that you have heavy psychological issues uh, then maybe don't do it and first mm-hmm. actually go and get treatment or uh, if you encounter anything that is like you know mm-hmm. too painful to deal with also stop and you know be mindful and first deal with that or yeah, yeah. maybe find also find a teacher yeah work find with the te- teacher yeah, yeah. Um, and that there's no rush you know like I think, I think, and this is more my own sort of intuition and practice experience because I'm one of these people. If you start to like really go really intensively chop away at your self-construct and all of these things in this sort of like almost, um, yeah, like a samurai sort of like, yeah, yeah. I'm going to destroy the mind and the <laughs> ego. That's just the ego doing that. Yeah. And then it starts to destroy itself and you, then you can yeah. get all in kinds of weird um, loops. I mean, this is there's all sorts of ways that we can get um, confused along the meditative yeah. path, but... That it's a gentle process, that it can be a gentle process. We should be gentle with ourselves. Yeah. We should be friendly with anything that arises. So one Vipassana teacher that I um, work with, Hank Barendrecht, he has this beautiful oh, metaphor. Yeah, I've um, heard of him. He's a mathematician or... He's a, yeah, he, he won the Spinoza Award for mathematics and he's a professor oh, yeah. and uh, he's been teaching for about 40 oh, years yeah. and I've done some retreats with him. Great guy. Um, 
so he has this one teaching in his vipassana approach which is like um you everything that arises like a visitor yeah and we should greet them in like as if they're a nice visitor in a house well how would you treat someone who comes and visits your home right and then i think i added this i can't remember if he said this but what i started to imagine when i was meditating sometimes is like even when painful things arise or weird thoughts whatever it is it's like i have a cup of tea and then i like cheers them with my cup of tea yeah yeah. tea has this like aura of peacefulness whatever so it was like really helpful for my mind (laughs) i'm just like cheersing this thing with a cup of tea sort of lightens the whole atmosphere yeah yeah that's kind of my experience actually too with meditation that it's actually soft the yes. pain more than creating harm mm. but um and you can think of the whole approach actually as a softening it's yeah it's it's a deepening and a softening of our expectations of our constructs our ideas until until we come to rest yeah, yeah. so how did you get on this path of uh, becoming uh interested in meditation neuroscience etc like what happened for you in your life um yeah well where to begin um i guess um curiosity i think is like at the Mm. heart of my being since i was a kid like i was i was a freaking annoying kid who was (laughs) just like asking questions about everything and non-stop talking (laughs) and so i grew up in a really christian home Oh yeah, and so um, my mom would always get into conversations with the pastors because they would be annoyed that I'm asking all these questions, like always, kind of um, inquiring. <laughs> you know, this mind just, just I've got to figure this stuff out. Um, and so I was kind of a curious kid. I was kind of um, um, also very rebellious, um, and I was good at some particular kind of tasks. Like I was good at sport, but also math, for instance. Like I was really always really kind of top of the class in math. Um, but then when I got to, to high school, I, um, I just went full rebellious, basically. I mean, I was still deeply curious, but I was just, a, I just became a bigger pain in the ass, basically, to my, to my teachers and <laughs> kind of everybody else, I think. Um, and I was still, I was still going to church, but I was still reading and interested. And then when I was about 16, I, I had this idea that, um, you know, I was, cause I was still questioning things. And so I, I decided that, um, you know, if this thing that I've been brought up in, Christianity, was true, if the Bible were true, then I should be able to expose myself to any information yeah. in the world, also other traditions, mm-hmm. and then all roads should lead back to Rome, right? So if I'm, I'm seeking truth and I'm exposing myself to all information, anything that comes my way, then I should just end up back at the Bible. Because if that's yeah, the, yeah, if yeah. it's true, then it's like, <laughs> that's where it's going to go, right? So this was the logic for me as a, as a 16-year-old. And so I was like, okay. That makes sense. So I'm I'm putting this to the test, and you know, two months later, I was an atheist, basically. <laughs> um, so then that was a huge shift. So then you know, I'm reading Darwin and Dawkins, yeah, and yeah. just getting behind the whole sort of. I was one of. The, then I became one of these annoying atheists, you know. What I mean, who was just yeah. like <laughs> pushing this stuff. Then it was a huge drama with my family, and um, I mean, actually, you know, they they weren't that bad, but it was emotionally, it was a it was a yeah. it was a big thing for them that I kind of gave up my my tradition. Eventually, they also kind of softened about this kind of stuff um and so then i had this shift and i was so they're uh, not super uh fundamental like no no <laughs> no now they're super chill my mom's right into meditation and stuff and it's it's really cool okay that, yeah so they, they right. kind of went on this journey with me i think in in some ways okay um and then when i was 16 i i'd been training kickboxing all my life because my brother was a, a good really good kickboxer and then trained me since i was six years old and so then when I turned 16, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to do kickboxing. I want to be a kickboxer for the rest of my life. 
um, still intellectually curious, but you know, I was going to be a fighter. And so I, I trained kickboxing basically. I would finish school at 3 p.m. I would train kickboxing every day till 8, okay. get, get home at like 9.30, go to sleep. I did that six days a week. Yeah. So I was just training. I was getting through school, but mostly I was just, I just wanted to be a fighter. And so I started to compete and I sort of um, went quite far quite quickly. So I fought a few, I fought a world champion. I fought for some titles in, in, in Australia. Um, and I did just enough schoolwork to kind of get by, right? Right. Like yeah. I just enough kind of, yeah, <laughs> between partying and fighting, I was yeah, like yeah, doing yeah. just enough. So by some luck, just I think again in some courses I was really good, like math. So then then I, that kind of got me through enough to get into university, and I still just wanted to train. So I got into university. I wanted to do something in science so that I had a, you know, I was still doing a bit of study but focusing on the fighting. And so then I um, took up geology actually okay actually i wanted to be an archaeologist right um but then i went into geology because i wanted to do science and archaeology was an arts degree back then um so i got into geology and i was studying that and just training basically and the problem was that geology is really demanding it's like really hard work right like you have yeah. to be in the lab you have to be you're learning like physics and math and stuff like <laughs> that and i was like I'm, i felt like i was doing the same stuff i was doing in school and it wasn't you know really sparking my curiosity um but why geology uh... well i wanted to be an archaeologist oh, I, yeah, thought yeah, it was like, yeah. I thought it was similar yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> i don't know i was why not again, i was not very focused on these things so I, i was just kind of going with the flow a little bit actually a lot yeah um but it's also very difficult for people uh in their late teens uh, to all of a sudden this decides where they want to go for the rest of their life and then yeah. the study is the fundament for yeah, it you know i think it's a bit strange sometimes it's well, super strange it's man. too it's too quick sometimes for a lot of people i mean absolutely yeah yeah and we're not really given the tools to inquire into ourselves to know yeah. what we're actually doing you know yeah uh, or what we should be doing and so um at this point i'm 18 i'm doing geology i'm still mostly just focused on kickboxing um and uh then as i was turning 19 several kind of big events happened i broke two ribs on national tv when i kickboxing oh, i tore my chest muscle i think i also had a broken foot at this point i had two <laughs> prolapse discs in my lower back so my body was falling apart basically wow. from all this training and um and then another thing happened which is that i had a mystical experience um and another thing happened which is that one night i was laying in bed um and i had an epiphany and jumped out of bed kind of spontaneously impulsively and changed all my subjects to psychology Uh, it just happened like this. It was, I, I had a psychology elective, um, but it's spurred on by this mystical experience and the kind of transitions that I was going through. Like I was, I was kind of questioning my kickboxing as well. So, yeah. cause what happened was I was on my way to my last fight. Um, I was traveling to, uh, Hong Kong for this competition. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was, I was traveling with this sort of career fighter, you know, I was, I was 19, I think. The other guy who I was traveling with, he was probably 30-something. And um, we were just chat chatting. He, he's been doing this for, you know, 10 years. And um, um, I was he was asking, you know, what do I do? Why am I into this um, sport? What am I doing? And I'm like, oh, I'm studying psychology and neuroscience. I'm kind of interested in the mind and how things work and, and whatever. And, and then he just, like, looked at me with this, this expression. He's like, well, then what the fuck are you doing here? <laughs> you know, and, and I could just see that, like, he's like, it was this feeling of... We don't do this because we want to do it. It's because I have to do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't think that's true for all fighters, but it was no, for me, it was just no. one of these moments where I just saw that 
And I was also, of course, beginning to understand that being punched in the head every day is not good for this organ that is so important in everything that we experience. So I think all of these things, the mystical experience kind of came together to change me to study psychology. Right. And then, you know, because of, well, really the mystical experience is something that completely transformed my perspective. This is where, you know, I was a scientific atheist, yeah. um, really into evolutionary theory, really this perspective, you know, of course I still believe in evolutionary theory, but at that point, this experience was so far out of my previous experiences mm-hmm. that I had to reinterpret everything. I had to kind of restart because part of that mystical experience for me involves discoveries that I felt that I couldn't possibly like I don't know where they came from because they had a lot of eastern content they had a lot of like buddhist iconography and ideas and I'd never been exposed to this stuff so it completely blew me away and so I was like (laughs) okay what's this then I came across some of the people who are bringing you know these eastern traditions from the east to the west and I I would read them and I'm like holy shit this corresponds to everything that I experienced it's like they're saying what I am learning you know spontaneously Um, and so this this caused such a powerful transition that I, I completely quit kick, kickboxing. I went to the other extreme. I became this sort of peace, love, hippie guy who was <laughs> just like researching everything that I could about these Eastern traditions, about yeah. Buddhism. I started a meditation practice. I started to work with plant medicines. I started this whole really kind of deep, deep journey into my um, subjective experience. Before, it was all in all the mind. Then when I got to there, it was like, wow, there's a subjective reality to explore and there's truth to being uncovered there. And as a kind of committed truth seeker, I was like, okay, I'm going to dive into this like all in. So then that's when I started to go on some meditation retreats. I got right into psychology and neuroscience. My grades went way up. And then then, um, then the rest kind of unfolded and I kept going down that path. And then I started one thing and I happened to have this PhD opportunity. I was like, wow, that sounds fantastic. I'm going to get paid to be able to study the mind and keep exploring. So then, then I did this PhD and it's, it, then it felt like, um, I was just on my road and the road was kind of unfolding in front of me. Interesting. Yeah. A lot of times you hear the, that, that thing of someone having a mystical Mm. experience that makes them interested in, uh, this path. Yeah. I, yeah, I kind of, what, what you said about atheism, um, I find that kind of interesting because, um, I would, yeah, there was a time where I would really say, yeah, I'm an atheist. Mm. Uh, but then, um, through actually studying philosophy deeper, mm. I kind of realized that, no, I'm, I'm, I'm a philosoph, philosophical theist, sort mm. of, sort of, because, um, and b- basically, if, if you look at, um, you know, the concept of God, like what is the definition of God? It would be something that is present everywhere and is mm. very important something that has where everything that exists exists in that field and is fundamentally mysterious well all of those things kind of apply to consciousness awareness Mm -hmm. sort of so i could i would say like you know consciousness um has a lot of these divine properties and uh i'm not talking about some imaginative man Mm -hmm. in the sky woman in the sky whatever who defines uh 
the laws we have to live by or something but mm. um that's beautifully put because yeah. i remember you shared this idea with me sometime in the okay. past and, and i was i was actually really struck by that <laughs> it's 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 a really cool insight because yeah. all it is you know these are just terms right like if you take god yeah first of all it's just it's just a word like let's just admit yeah. that like it's just a freaking word and then you're like okay well what properties does does something that would be a god have you know like you're saying it's kind of creative it's things are things are happening it's omniscient it has these certain qualities that we might use with that word yeah. and then you go is there something in our experience that meets those qualities yeah and then you're like well awareness kind of has the quality of it always knows everything that arises yeah right um somehow within that field of awareness everything is being created you know it, using that term a little bit loosely yeah so it has this omniscient principle it's creative it's also kind of all powerful because nothing happens without awareness yeah. and everything happens in this field of awareness yeah. and then you're like well i can see why someone would call that god right? yeah definitely <laughs> Yeah, I I think the 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 thing is like with a lot of uh, words, people immediately jump into a discussion about like does God exist mm, without mm. actually well define it first, you know, and exactly. uh, uh, also you know free will is a whole uh, field where people just immediately jump into a discussion mm. about um, if we have free will or not without really actually thinking about what free means and what yeah. will means and if these two words even like how how are they grammatically or or, or yeah. how do you say ontologically related um yeah. but that's a whole exactly discussion on itself hey but you know i also wanted to ask i don't, I don't know how much time we have oh, now yeah. but because you're also interested in all these things is there anything in in your own journey that sort of brought you here to doing this first podcast man <laughs> yeah um many things <laughs> but uh, i guess um well what I could go back maybe when I finished, well, I, I have a master's in uh, cognitive neuroscience, brain mm -hmm. and cognition, and uh, my research had nothing uh, to do with meditation and stuff like that. But um, after graduating, I, I was really in a kind of a bit of a psychologically dark uh, um, state back mm -hmm. then, and I really didn't... I didn't have the uh, motivation or energy or focus or discipline at that point to really continue a career in science, mm. I guess. Um, um, also, in during high school, I was also someone who's doing a lot of things and kind of just getting by with grades that were okay-ish just because my mom was... Uh, you know, shouting at me to <laughs> study, but I, I don't know, I was just busy with a lot of things, but I was very interested in actually the subjects of philosophy in high school really sparked a lot of yeah. interest in me. And if my old philosophy teacher is watching, uh, thank you very much. <laughs> I tried to find your email actually to thank you, but I... How good are those teachers that we have yeah, that like yeah. you just never forget? Exactly. Just had, uh, I remember Mr. Nguyen, my uh, uh, math teacher in high school. <laughs> <laughs> Love you, man. <laughs> thank you. But, um, well, the thing is uh, what happened uh, when I finished uh, my uh, neuroscience studies yeah. is that I was in that dark place and I was kind of like not knowing what I wanted to do with my life. Mm. And a friend of mine, he recommended actually a spiritual training, like mm. which he had done himself. And uh, I started doing these trainings at this organization. Uh, and um, it was a completely new thing, sort of. I mean, I've had, I've had some 
mystical experiences before that also mm. uh, when i was younger and also tried psychedelic drugs which gave me like huge uh, insight into how uh, beautiful things can be and how things can be beyond the standard framework that we normally are in maybe mm -hmm. but um the, what happened is because i was in this spiritual training organization i actually i was a very like i would say skeptical kind of trying to be rational scientific person but mm -hmm. there uh, they were also working with things like astrology and and like uh magical thinking like mm. attracting sub something uh purely with the mind like a very pure form of love attraction or very like fundamental and i i kind of started like believing in those things and mm. some of my friends were like whoa what happened to navid and they mm. uh, there was a lot of things involved it was a new community for me mm. and it was like charisma was involved and good teachers and that there was also a lot of valuable tools about coaching yourself and stuff in there but there was also things that were um yeah very uh unscientific so to say about it and things that have that i actually knew bef before that i knew kind of like okay this is more based on like something like astrology it's more based on um tricking your mind into picking up lines from a story that resonate with you and right. uh, etc but but then at one point um i kind of got out of these organizations like uh in, after one and a half years of being really involved and uh, i i kind of my rationality came back sort of um my skepticism came back and 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 because of a book i read called spiritual enlightenment the damnest thing <laughs> do you know that book i do know oh that my book. god <laughs> yeah by jed very Mc interesting yeah. we could have a whole podcast about yes. the contents of this book yeah and who the fuck the writer is i still don't know yeah. because it's a pseudonym jack jed mckenna, jed McKenna. nothing yeah. to do with terence mckenna <laughs> and also some conversations with friends back then and stuff but uh, then i had a week of kind of re getting reconfigured back into like my path of mm. continuing with being a someone who values truth and science and skepticism and doesn't want to go down like a new age path mm. of mm. spirituality but something that can also be rational at the same time so i typed into google because i i knew because of those trainings also there was meditation involved and there was uh, uh, deeper processes involved i i knew that there is something there mm -hmm. so i typed in rational spirituality into google something like that and then sam harris popped up yeah. uh, also a neuroscientist uh, philosopher meditation expert and then i was like hey whoa this is interesting and mm -hmm. then uh, i saw I saw the, the whole concept of podcasts then emerge, obviously, because he had his podcast. And I saw Joe Rogan. I saw uh, some other podcasts. But then I kind of started following Sam Harris's uh, techniques and meditations and stuff. Back then, he didn't have an app, but he... I wrote... Oh, yeah, I, I, I uh, uh, was reading his book, uh, um, Waking Up. So spirit, uh, the, the guide to spirituality without religion is mm. the subtitle, I believe. And there, how he describes, uh, like how he gives instructions for meditation there. And then at one point mm. he's like, okay, first learn to focus on the breath. Uh, and then later he went into like, okay, now focus on a certain object. Mm. I'm not sure about exact instructions, but then try to find 
point attention back to the observer mm. um, and see if there is anything to find. And when I did that, it clicked for me. I was like, wow, whoop, no, there actually the observer <laughs> is just another object in aware awareness. So, mm. whoa, the, the no self thing mm. from an experiential point of view, it really clicked yeah. and then it disappeared. It was kind of like, I remember like I was sitting in a train watching like, from the window outside i was reading and then uh i i think i was doing that and then i was like wow this is interesting and then i got deeper into it and then did more meditations and um yeah basically sam harris was has mostly been my virtual teacher in this path <laughs> since then and nice. yeah this is how i kind of got interested inspiration. In yeah, yeah inspiration <laughs> exactly and because all these podcasts that i was listening to myself yeah. and stuff um eventually inspired me to do it myself i don't know even how we this this all all of this happened in the last couple of weeks like i don't know i was just busy with uh, the world is kind of coming back alive uh, yeah we didn't even talk about the pandemic uh, interesting yeah. <laughs> awesome how good is that yeah and <laughs> then <pandemic>. yeah <laughs> and then this uh yeah that's sort of how it went <laughs> nice man yeah, thanks thank you for sharing do you have any final words for hmm. this podcast any final words man it's been so rich yeah really, i've enjoyed this so much i feel like we've covered such a beautiful spectrum of things and, yeah uh, and we should get back together again and, and for uh, sure have this conversation um i don't know i don't have much to say i don't really um uh, usually people sort of share their social media or something the only thing i have is twitter so if anyone wants to follow me on twitter they can um what's your uh, tag uh my name ruben laconan but okay. you can you can find me also on um yeah if you look up ruben meditation amsterdam you can find yeah. ruben laconan and then you can also i have a website so at least you can rubenlaconan.com yeah exactly yeah yeah so there's just there's some articles that are also for a broader audience yeah. but um mostly science so that's it man and um i hope everybody enjoyed it i enjoyed chatting with you a lot man awesome yeah me um, too man it's well, been uh, time flies actually yeah. uh how long do you think we've been here <laughs> well uh i can look at my clock i think one hour 40 minutes or something. perfect <laughs> but um time doesn't exist anyway in the he the here and now That's is all, enough, it's all it's all a construct it's all a construct <laughs> okay lovely people thank you for um watching listening and um I'll see you next time. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs>